Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for what this day represents, what we observe and what we celebrate. Lord, I pray that even though the crowds who lay their coats and their palm branches before Jesus on this day 2,000 years ago didn't quite fully get it, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes so that we may see you fully and we may worship you fully. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2012, the news website uh, run by The Ledger published an article, an online article, that gave some personal stories about misunderstandings. Here are a few that I found pretty amusing. One person wrote, There's a singles group at my church for people over 35, so I decided to tempt fate and attend a lunch. As I entered the dining room, I noticed about 300 people, most of them, like me, female. Since I didn't know anyone, I sat at an empty table near the front. Soon, six men walked up and joined me, all of them young and good-looking. I was stunned and thought, well, maybe it's my new dress. They were friendly and introduced themselves as they sat down. Then the man to my right enlightened me. This was the first table to go through the buffet line. <laughs> Another person wrote, My friend in his 30s was in a store with his two-year-old son. One passerby was so taken with the boy's thick curly hair that she exclaimed, Your granddaughter is so beautiful. As the woman continued on, my friend said to his son, Matthew, I think we've both been insulted. And lastly, another story went, each morning as a woman was watering her lawn, her three-year-old neighbor, Brandon, would poke his head through their mutual fence and say hello. One day, she saw the little boy at the supermarket shopping with his mother. Brandon pointed to the woman and said, hey, how did you get out? Even though these pretty amusing stories of how a simple misunderstanding can turn something into a humorous situation, there was a pretty glaring misunderstanding by Jesus' followers when it came to him entering Jerusalem directly on his way to the cross. Jesus knows exactly what's going on and what will happen, where it will come as an absolute shock to all those who laid down palm branches in front of Jesus as he walked past. Prior to our passage this morning, the gospel writer Luke writes these words to transition to Jesus' focus in his earthly ministry. I can get this thing to work. All right, somebody move their head. This might need new batteries. All right, guys at the sound booth, can you just go to the next slide for me? All right, well, while they're working on that, I'm going to read the verse. Um, Luke 9:51. We, we read, As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. We read that in Luke 9:51. Jesus will take the long way around to Jerusalem after that, doing the work and teaching about the kingdom of God that he knew he was called to do and won't directly leave straight for Jerusalem. Thank you, guys. For not, until nine chapters later, but this is a transition marker by Luke. There is a distinct movement in Jesus' ministry here as recorded. 
One where Jesus is determined to resolutely head down the road towards what he knows is waiting for him in Jerusalem. Not only does he know that the cross is waiting for him in Jerusalem, and that that is the one thing between him and this ascension back to the Father, but he knows the prophecy that will need to be fulfilled before even the cross as well. Everything that starts Jesus hurtling towards the cross will start with his prophetically fulfilled entrance into Jerusalem, which we remember and observe as Palm Sunday. If you go back and read through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll notice something in between all the miracles and all the parables and teaching about the kingdom of God. In between all of that, there is a spiritual battle going on between the forces of darkness and Jesus and what he knows, what his father's timeline is for the revelation of him as the Messiah, as the true king. When demons were cast out of different people and they threatened to undo that timeline of revelation, Jesus had to rebuke them and tell them to shut up. When the crowds of people wanted to start a rebellion towards the Roman Empire and set Jesus up as the leader who was going to lead this rebellion, Jesus had to escape. All of those times were premature. It wasn't time yet. They weren't the right timing. And more importantly, they did not fulfill the prophecies of Jesus' revelation as the Messiah, as foretold by the Old Testament prophets hundreds of years before. So this morning, we're going to take a look at the gospel writer Matthew's recording of these Old Testament prophecies of Jesus revealed as the true king and what deeper meaning Jesus' fulfillment of these prophecies gives to this triumphal entry into Jerusalem and our celebration of it as Palm Sunday. So the first point that we come to this morning is, is fulfillment number one. There's, there are two uh, if you read through these, when we're going to, uh, you'll see that there are two sections of prophecy that need to be fulfilled. And this is the first one. After Jesus, is, Jesus and his disciples leave the town of Jericho on a direct route to Jerusalem and the cross, we read in Matthew 21, if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn there. If you didn't, that's fine. There should be one located in a pew in front of you. Please also turn there. This one's easy. This is the first book in the New Testament first book in the New Testament. And flip forward to where you see the big 21, and we're going to start in the first five verses here. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Here's the first prophecy. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus doesn't immediately enter Jerusalem from Jericho. First, he stops at the village of Bethphage. Many scholars believe that Bethphage was very close to Bethany, in fact, a, a neighboring town. And in fact, it's mentioned along with Bethany in Mark's account of the triumphal entry. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany. They were right next to each other on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. 
According to one biblical scholar, Bethphage, along with Bethany, were popular suburban tourist destinations when it came to Jewish people visiting Jerusalem for different festivals. These towns were at the edge, and this is why, these towns were at the edge of the Pharisaical distance that it was allowable for Jewish people to walk on the Sabbath. That's why they were so popular. So Jesus and his disciples reach Bethphage, and he sends two of his disciples to what Matthew and Mark describe as the village opposite of where they are. Perhaps this is Bethany, what they're talking about here, the village right next to Bethphage. What are they supposed to do when they get there? They're not just supposed to stroll in, have a bite to eat, and hang out for a little bit. What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to look for a donkey and then a a baby donkey, a, a colt, next to the mother donkey. Find a mother donkey and her colt, both tied to a post, untie them, and bring them back to Jesus at Bethphage. Now, if you were the owner of these donkeys, and you saw a couple of guys walk into your village and try stealing your donkeys, what would your reaction be? Exactly as how Luke records it for us. Whoa, 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 whoa. Guys, let's chill. What are you doing? Are you just coming to take my livestock? You just waltz in here. Don't don't even say anything to anybody. Just untie the donkeys and you start walking away. But Jesus says, tell them what you need them for, and he's immediately going to let you have them. Jesus already has a plan for that anticipated response. He tells these disciples before they even leave Bethphage, if anyone asks you what you're doing, tell them the Lord needs them. That's all he says. That's all he says to tell them in response. The Lord needs them. That's huge right there. This act was not uncommon. What we need to think about and remember, this act in and of itself was not uncommon, especially to those living in Bethany and Bethphage. But this was not just something anyone could do. What was common, especially to those living in these neighboring towns, to the metropolis of Jerusalem, was that when a royal emissary on his way to Jerusalem needed an animal for transportation, they could impress upon those residents to temporarily allow them to use that animal. So this wasn't uncommon. So to have someone do this was not in and of itself out of the ordinary. However, this man, Jesus, was a little bit different than your run-of-the-mill royal emissary, wasn't he? This act by Jesus was one sign of Jesus being the royal Messiah, the true king of Israel and of the whole world. Jesus knew that the owner of these donkeys was enough of his follower to realize that and let the donkeys go. It was now time for that messianic and royal revelation. Jesus knew the Old Testament prophecies. His fellow member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is the one who originated those prophecies. Jesus is the embodiment of the Word of God, every Word of God, both Old and New Testaments. So he knows the prophecy given in in the Old Testament, which Matthew records in in verse 5, and why that needs to be fulfilled. So what is that first prophecy? In verse 5, Matthew basically quotes directly from Zechariah 9.9. 9. 
But many biblical scholars believe that Matthew is also indirectly referencing Isaiah 62.11. And for many of you who have Bibles with cross-references, you may actually see both of those references, both Zechariah 9.9 and Isaiah 62.11. So, in order to get the full picture of what Matthew is getting at, to, uh, getting to here in his quote, we also need to understand Isaiah 62.11. And this is Isaiah 62.11. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, the inhabitant of Jerusalem, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. The whole chapter of Isaiah 62 is a message that speaks about the restoration of Israel. During the prophet Isaiah's time on earth, he brought messages from God during the reigns of four kings, all kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. During Isaiah's time, he witnessed the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel to the Assyrian army, and it looked like Judah would be next. However, Judah, through God's help, withstood that attack from Assyria. Isaiah knew that Judah would be exiled at some point in the future, though, so his book of Isaiah contains messages directed towards two groups of people. The first target of messages was Isaiah's current generation, to seek to get them to turn from their sinful behavior. The second target of messages was the future generation of Jewish people who would be exiled into Babylonian lands. So because of that, the first part of Isaiah, directed to those of Isaiah's generation, mostly focused on what would befall Judah if they did not turn from their sins. The second part, as God is a merciful God, is directed towards those future exiles, that God would restore them. And not just restore them in an earthly sense, which would happen, but restore them in a full and complete sense, which will only take place during the reign of the coming Messianic King. Isaiah 62 falls within the messages of hope for those future exiles living in hopelessness in Babylon. It speaks of Jerusalem's full restoration during what we know as the still future Messianic Millennial Kingdom. And we read, The nations will see your righteousness. World leaders will be blinded by your glory. Has this happened yet? No. And you will be given a new name by the Lord's own mouth. The Lord will hold you in his hand for all to see, a splendid crown in the hand of God. The Lord has sworn to Jerusalem by his own strength, I will never again hand you over to your enemies. Never again will foreign warriors come and take away your grain and new wine. You raise the grain and you will eat it, praising the Lord. Within the courtyards of the temple, you yourselves will drink the wine you have pressed. If you were living in exile in Babylon and read those words, that would give you great hope, would it not? And who, by reading these words, was going to be the one to initiate this time of renowned peace and abundance? God himself. That's who's going to be the one to usher in this time of renowned peace and abundance. We read this in the following verses. Go out through the gates. Prepare the highway for my people to return. Smooth out the road. Pull out the boulders. Raise a flag for all the nations to see. 
The Lord has sent this message to every land. Tell the people of Israel, look, your Savior is coming. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. They will be called the holy people and the people redeemed by the Lord. And Jerusalem will be known as the desirable place and the city no longer forsaken. That's the context that Matthew pulls his quote out of in verse 11. Those are joyous words, aren't they? They speak of God himself coming. The Lord has sent this message to every land. Look, your Savior is coming. God himself is coming. He will be the Savior of Jerusalem and all of her inhabitants. Not only that, but God as Savior will bring his reward with him when he arrives. According to one biblical scholar, when a banner was raised in this time period, it was meant to announce some big news. So Isaiah, using this language, he's saying that the whole world should know that God is coming. Not only that, but God's people scattered all over the ancient world should be informed that God was coming. These are exciting words, especially the ones about full restoration and God bringing his reward to Jerusalem. We know that the words would be fully fulfilled in the future, but those living in Babylon and then hundreds of years later, once Jerusalem was partially restored, those living during Jesus' time, what would they be expecting? All of this, all at the same time, right? That's what they would be expecting. That brings us to Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this is the quote that Matthew pulls and records in the 21st chapter of his book. With the understanding of that similar language used in Isaiah 62 in direct reference to God himself coming to restore Jerusalem with his reward, the king is, yes, here, the king is, yes, referring to the Messiah and king, but that king also being who? That Messiah king also being God. They have to be taken together. The connection is incredibly significant. Now, Zechariah was a prophet who was born in Babylon during the Jewish exile and was a contemporary of those who returned to Jerusalem following Persian King Cyrus's decree to let the Jewish people return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Why is that significant? While Isaiah's prophecy about God himself coming to Jerusalem happened before the Babylonian exile to the future Jewish people in that exile, Zechariah's similar words come after the Jewish people have returned to so-called restored Jerusalem. So Zechariah's similar language is connecting back to Isaiah's prophecy years before, and the connection is this. Even though it seems like Jerusalem is being restored, the arrival of this Savior and this King, God himself, still has not fully occurred yet. Keep looking. That's the significance of this. This is how 
that Messiah King, who is also God, will arrive. That's right here. He will arrive on a donkey, and not just a donkey, but a colt, a, a baby donkey. That statement enough was enough to turn heads. Royal dignitaries did not enter a city on a donkey, let alone the offspring of a donkey. They entered with strong-looking steeds, with entourages to accompany them. That humility in messianic anticipation became a source of pride for the Jewish people. But the Jewish people at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem forgot about the meaning behind the humility of entering on a donkey. Military processionals, which the people laying down palm branches thought was going on when Jesus rode in on a donkey, were done with a horse. Civil and peaceful visits were done on a donkey. That symbol does not seem to go hand in hand with what this king would be. That's prophesied here, right? Just and endowed with salvation. That doesn't seem like riding in on a donkey would accomplish any of that. The misinterpretation of that is purely physical. That this king would bring salvation to Jerusalem by releasing her from Roman occupation and mete out his justice on all those who oppressed Jerusalem. What it did mean was a spiritual salvation and a spiritual justice. Rather, those putting their trust in him, not getting what they justly deserve. Do you see the irony in that? The justice is that those who put their faith and trust in this Messiah King as God will not get what they justly deserve. But then again, as we've seen time and time again lately in our study of 1 Corinthians, God purposely designed everything about his plan to not make any earthly sense to the world. So why should this be any surprise? It was purposely designed to only be understood through spiritual revelation. The same is true of the triumphal entry. The Jewish people in Jesus' day did understand that they were to be looking for their Messiah King entering Jerusalem on a donkey. And some may have even understood him to also be God, but they did not fully understand the symbolism of his first arrival in Jerusalem. Now there will be a day when Jesus will return to the area of Jerusalem, standing on the Mount of Olives. And on that day, he will be riding a powerful horse, coming in full military processional to win military victory. For Jerusalem. That will happen someday. So that's the first fulfillment of the first section of prophecy here in Matthew 21. Now we're going to get to the second one. That was the crowd's understanding and lack of understanding with the first prophecy Matthew quoted. Now what about the second one, verses 6 through 11? The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and lay their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road. Now, if you look back in the Old Testament, there's precedence for this, welcoming new kings by laying your coat down on the road in front of them. And others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on, in the road. 
The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Do you see the sad observation that we can already make? People are asking, who is this guy? And the popular opinion is that it's just some prophet from Nazareth. Do you see the sad, the sad part of that? What Matthew quotes in verse 9 is only the middle part of what he records the people chanting as Jesus rides from Bethphage to Jerusalem. And it comes directly out of the first line of Psalm 118.26. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Direct quote from that. So did Matthew just rip this out of context and apply it to a scenario that this verse has absolutely nothing to do with? Well, let's go to that psalm and find out just that. We know from other messianic psalms that the author can start out with one topic and it can become messianic very quickly, can't it? This is because of what is described by the theological term called telescoping when dealing with prophecy. More or less, what telescoping means is that, when a, that a prophecy may have two meanings. Very often has two meanings. A somewhat immediate meaning and a still future complete fulfillment. We already dealt with this a little bit when we talked about the restoration of Jerusalem. That a lot of the prophecies in the Old Testament before the Jewish exiles returned to Jerusalem both referred to the partial restoration of Jerusalem when the Jewish exiles returned and rebuilt the temple and city walls and the future complete restoration of Jerusalem when Jesus returns and sets up his earthly kingdom. The fact that Psalm 118 was used by the people of Israel during Passover, which is why all these people were gathered in Jerusalem in the first place on this day, is astounding. And here's why. This psalm was often quoted during Passover with a partial understanding of what it really meant. While the now fulfillment of this psalm involved Israel as the object, the complete fulfillment of the psalm was the fulfillment of Israel, and that is Israel's Savior, Jesus. You'll see what I mean when I read portions of this. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Isn't the connection between the words of this psalm and what was unfolding before the crowd's eyes as the long-awaited righteous Messiah who was to bring salvation rode through one of the gates of Jerusalem, a tremendous one? This is what even reveals to us what they shouted, what they shouted, and, and why they laid down palm branches in front of him too. Psalm 118.25 says, O oh Lord, do save. We beseech you, O oh Lord. We beseech you, do send prosperity. And what does the word Hosanna in Matthew 21 mean? Save now. 
Oh Lord, do save, save now. The crowd recognized Jesus as their salvation, albeit a misplaced salvation, a misplaced understanding. If we had any doubts that they were attributing this to Jesus, the very next verse is the one Matthew records that they quoted verbatim. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Lastly, Psalm 118.27 says, The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. There's already a close connection with foliage here. As the word for cords, as translated into English here, cords, and the word for foliage are the same word. In fact, they would make cords out of tree leaves and tree branches. As the psalm was also chanted during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would wave palm branches during that festival. That understanding is reflected in the NIV translation. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. Tree bows. So it has a connection to both tree branches, and more than anyone at that point wanted to think about a sacrifice. According to one biblical scholar, palm branches were also symbols of joy and victory. And at this point in history, both Jewish people and Roman soldiers saw them as symbols of peace. All of this connects with the Jewish crowd anticipating this Messiah as coming to finally bring them civil peace. All that to say, the crowd had a partial understanding of what was going on and what they were anticipating and why they should be excited. But they misunderstood the other parts in the Old Testament that talked about the Messiah suffering and even dying. They didn't want to know about that or understand that. They wanted the good parts of the prophecy to all come true right then and there. But that was never the way it was supposed to be. And you know what? I think I can speak for all of us that I'm grateful it wasn't. I'm grateful that my Savior didn't fully bring in the kingdom then and there. I'm grateful that he was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. I'm grateful that he rose again from the dead three days later. And I'm grateful that even though he knew what awaited him when all the cheering died down and the palm branches laying in the road had withered up and everyone had gone back to their observance of Passover, he still went through it. And that's the true understanding of what happened on that first Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago. We can put our trust in what fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies, along with hundreds more, did for us the first time he came to earth so that we can not only spend the rest of our earthly lives with him, but all of our eternal afterlife with him. The second time this fulfillment comes back to earth, it's going to be a much different story. Not only will Jerusalem be restored, but the whole world 
transformed into an unprecedented time of peace and prosperity in God's timing with Christ ruling it as eternal king. So as we think about what happened in the past in connection with Palm Sunday, let us also keep our eyes on what will happen in the future the next time the king returns to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these encouraging words. We thank you for these powerful words. We thank you for the hope that they give to us. And Lord, as we head into this Passion Week, the week when you celebrate Passover with your disciples one last time, when you wash their feet, when you instituted the Lord's table, the Last Supper, when you declared to us the new covenant, that it would be that it would come to pass through your blood that following that dinner you and your disciples would go out to the garden of gethsemane where you would pray you would know what was going what was coming for you they didn't know and with that kiss you were arrested brought before an illegal court tried illegally and unjustly humiliated, mocked, beaten, beard ripped out, crown of thorns shoved onto your head. And yet you still went willingly. You still picked up the cross, that roughly hewn cross, on your already ripped up back that they ripped apart with cat of nine tails. You carried that up until you could carry it no longer. And even though somebody else carried it for you the rest of the way, you still put yourself on it. You still willingly let the nails be pounded into your wrists and into your feet. You still willingly let yourself be raised up. And you still willingly cried out, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And Lord, then you cried out with your last breath, It is finished. And because of that, it just starts for us. It's all beginning for us. Because the veil tore and we have access to the Father because and only because of the sacrifice and death of your Son, the long-awaited Messiah, the true King. And three days later, you came back to life, fulfilling all of the prophecies. We can put our full faith and trust in you. We give you all the praise and all the thanks that you knew all of this was coming and you still willingly went through all of it. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.